0: Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features composer Nina Shaker. We hope you enjoy.
1: And wonderful gentlefolk welcome back to the sound weavers podcast as always i am your harping host dr Rosanna moore and my lovely co-host today is the delightful dr adam paul cordell how are you today my dear
0: i'm doing well rosie how are you
1: just wonderful thank you so much for asking And today our wonderful guest is the brilliant Nina Shaker who is a wonderful composer exploring the intersection of identity, vulnerability, love, and laughter to create bold and intensely personal works. She is currently a PhD candidate at Princeton University. And just looking at her resume, her music has been performed by so many people such as the Albany Symphony, LA Philharmonic, Jack Quartet, 8th Blackbird, and that is just to name a few. So without further ado, hi Nina, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having
2: me.
0: As Rosie mentioned, the first sentence in your bio, you state that you are a composer who explores the intersection of identity and vulnerability, love and laughter. I just wanted to start off by asking you, what is your process for exploring such complex and arguably abstract aspects of humanity and the social experience?
2: You know, for me, I think my relationship with my work is something that is much more um, direct and concrete and meaningful to me, then I think for me, it's such a big part of how I even construct my own self identity um, through my work. And a big reason for that is because, you know, I'm always kind of struggling since when I was growing up with a lot of like stereotypes about, you know, the way I was supposed to represent myself, especially being, you know, an Indian American, being a woman you know, even there, there's all these stereotypes about like, even just being an artist (laughs) who's Asian, like that's almost actually like a cultural contradiction. For me, art making was already kind of this act of defiance against a lot of these stereotypes about how other people were defining who I was. I just always felt I have control in what I'm doing over my work, and I can use my work to really explore these parts of myself that I normally would feel afraid to share, but I feel so much more con- confident when I'm making something and putting myself out there through my music. And also it's a way for me to explore my intersection with my environment. You know, it's, it's being critical of myself sometimes. It might be me learning from other people. It might be realizing how I've changed over time as I've grown and how I'm going to continue changing over time. Um, It's sometimes developing close relationships with my collaborators. You know, all of these things um, really are important to what I do.
1: So looking at your, again, as I said, your wealth of experience writing for different groups, you've composed for many major ensembles such as Jack Quartet, Ed Blackbird, The Lyris Quartet and far more how do you approach securing commissions? Do you find that this experience is more word of mouth or do you actively identify and work towards composing for specific ensembles or instrumentations?
2: It's a good question. (laughs) Now that I'm looking back, I think basically every work that I have done since I was maybe... 20 years old was a commission actually I realized Mm. that I mean I'll do some projects for myself definitely like interspersed but um most I and it's interesting because in a weird way that sounds like I didn't have much choice (laughs) what I was writing but on the other hand I think that I was also really as I got older, and this is something that I'm really thinking about now in this next stage of my career and focusing on the kinds of projects that I want to do and making sure that I make time for, you know, my own interests and the avenues of learning that I want to explore, like figuring out which kinds of projects I want to do, you know, does that mean saying no to things sometimes, you know, and I'm I'm very like non-confrontational and bad at saying no so that's like a big that was a big learning curve for me to be able to decide oh maybe I don't want to only write orchestra music (laughs) like for the next two years um and I think also in terms of commissions it's a lot of it is you know due to just close connections and relationships that we build and you know I was lucky that um a lot of these experiences that I've had, you know, I was worried that they would feel transactional, especially when it's some of the larger organizations. But in most cases, I, people have been really kind and and um, willing to engage in deep conversations. And so I think in terms of going through this process, it's figuring out the people that like you have a good working relationship with and 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 that might change over time too. And and that's okay.
1: Continuing the talk about sort of the nuts and bolts of being a composer, how much do you find that you are writing based on your own inspiration versus meeting a commissioning deadline? So that, that actually passes off really nicely from what you were just saying.
2: You know, during the pandemic, it was such a strange time for composers. And I'm very grateful that I have... Um, a steady stream of work during that period, which I don't think a lot of artists had. And especially for performers, that was, it was just such a difficult time. Even though I lost a lot of concerts, there were a lot of these emergency projects that were popping up. You know, everybody was trying to stay active or find ways to support um, young artists. And I was very strangely, like the busiest I've ever been in 2020. And I think also part of it was due to um, what was going on socially, you know, with with George Floyd. And it's, it's strange looking back on this now because I have a lot of mixed feelings about it because like a lot of arts organizations were panicking and trying to kind of do a whole referendum and trying to prove that, you know, they could program diverse composers. And um, I think I like the amount of work that I had suddenly like picked up exponentially after that point just, and I honestly think part of it was just because I was brown. It's a very hard, confusing thing for me to manage because I'm always trying to make sure that I'm being programmed for the right reasons and not being tokenized. And um, so I think from that experience, you know, I, I kind of started pushing the envelope a little bit in terms of the projects that I was doing. And, you know, if, if an organization set a term, like some sort of terms of what they wanted, um, I would try to enter in some sort of dialogue with them about um, how can I explore something related to that, but from a different lens. And one example of this, the piece I did for Jack Quartet um, was this multi-track piece that I did. All these orchestras were doing these click track pieces, you know, where everybody would just record their little part of some Brahms symphony in their apartment, and then everybody would layer the recordings together, and then that was the performance, and it was just like this really watered-down version of what that was supposed to be, and I, I was frustrated and thought that people were not using that sort of remote performance idea as a creative opportunity, and so I, I made this multi-track piece. It's kind of a reimagining of the Bach uh, cello prelude, like the really famous one. Like The idea is that if anybody can perform that in their own time with, you know, the whole score is spatially notated. and It's like kind of de- a degrading and a reconstruction of Bach. The performers have flexibility in how they perform things because it's spatial. And But like that, for example, was something that, you know, I kind of entered into a dialogue with with, with National Sadas, who was the presenter, and said, I want to do a piece of this kind of form. I think I've never done this before. I think this would be really fun for me to explore. And, and also from like an identity metaphor standpoint, like kind of breaking down block and putting it back together and like almost like a remix.
1: Now onto the more business aspect of composing. How did your education prepare you for the more business side of commissioning and otherwise funding your work?
2: Honestly, I don't know if it did. I think my whole experience with career and contracts and everything was really accelerated than compared to most composers and kind of like fell into it in a a different way. Than a lot of other people and because of that i didn't really know how like i didn't have time to learn what contracts were like how those work mm. and you know how to negotiate and which, which are things that i think you need to develop a sort of like business acumen for um and when i was like 19 <laughs> like i didn't really know any of these things and i i remember so there are these things called performing rights organizations, or PROs, um, that composers can uh, uh, register with, and then like like ASCAP or BMI or in, in Europe, CSAC. And um, these organizations can not only support you and lobby for you, but also they can supply royalties for you. And so with ASCAP, it, it was interesting. I I had applied for their, um, they have this young composer award and I only applied because the professor told me to, (laughs) I didn't really know what it was. I won. Um, the BMI also has their own, um, similar competition. Um, and so then I joined ASCAP, but I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know you could get royalties. So I, I think before, I think about two or three years went by before I ever sent in a program that could have given me a royalty check Um, because I just didn't know what it was. I didn't know I could talk to them, that I could establish a relationship with them, that they could lobby for me, that they could sometimes provide travel support. Like, I didn't know any of these things um, until I think probably two or three years after (laughs) signing with them. It's interesting. I mean, right now, I I, I recently signed with um, a management agency, young concert artists. And so in, now it's it's been helpful because as I've been doing more and more larger contracts and um, things like rental agreements for, for orchestra performances, like I, I didn't know how to create a rental agreement before on my own or how much To charge for rentals or things like that. And they've been really helpful. But again, that was not really through school necessarily. I mean, I I could ask mentors about things, but there's always this strange, um, people are just afraid to talk about that. It's like taboo, like to talk about, um, commission fees or, um, you know, how contracts work and, I am lucky that I had a, a close set of friends who I would ask about these things with and we would always be like do you think this is too low for a commission and um but before then I didn't really have any kind of baseline of what fees were standard and then I was always taken aback with when I asked like if I had a commission and then I would ask my professor is it seem right the fee and then I remember one instance, the professor was shocked at how low the fee was. But then when I asked them, like, how much should I charge, then they never gave me the answer. So like, uh, you know, like these these kinds of things happen all the time. And it's really hard for young composers to figure out how much to
0: charge. Yeah, it's interesting. That that whole idea of being afraid to set a, a price on things. And because, I mean, on top of all of that, I know from a, a performer perspective, a lot of it depends even on the community that you live in, right? What you can ask in, um, you know, Washington, D.C. is going to be very different than Chicago, is going to be very different than Columbus, Ohio, you know?
1: I also think just talking about money, just Mm -hmm. we don't like talking about money. I don't think anyone does, but especially artists. I don't we've had a lot of these conversations in general in the last few years of just we need to be able to advocate for ourselves and know what is an appropriate rate to be setting for what we do. And we're not always given the tools for that, which is frustrating, to say the least. Mm
0: -hmm. Kind of in keeping with the questions about education. What does a person do with a dual degree in music composition and chemical engineering? <laughs> um, do you find that your chemical engineering background informs your compositional activities?
2: You know, I, I have several thoughts about this. Um, and I think, you know, it's funny because when I started doing my engineering degree, like when I entered college, A lot of it, honestly, was not by choice. (laughs) It was because my parents were afraid that I wouldn't be able to sustain myself. And also, I think just being, you know, having Indian parents and like just culturally, you know, there are very few Indian artists. There are very few examples of successful Indian artists who have made a career for themselves and at least in this country. Um, I mean, of course, in India, it's a different story, but like, because of that, they felt like really afraid of me trying to have a career in the arts. But then as I went along with the degree, I, I actually really am happy that I did it. And I think it allowed me to have like a really different kind of college experience. You know, I I was interacting with very different people and I, I got to have really different kinds of experiences. I think it was actually a good thing for me to have to go through that experience of going to a career fair and interviewing. And then I ended up interning for Procter & Gamble and for Bounty. I, I made 2000 rolls of Bounty paper towel <laughs> when I <laughs> was interning. But um, like I actually think that going through that experience was important for me just from a personal standpoint. Um, But I think in terms of more like philosophically, um, even though, I mean, there are things that I want to explore maybe down the line of maybe trying to incorporate like heat or something like that in a performance um, or some other multi-sensory thing. But even just like more conceptually, I think engineering really impacted the way that I look at um, societal issues, I think, um, and I think that just like scientists and artists think very differently about issues like that, just because of their own backgrounds and what their knowledge base is. And like, I, I always give this example of um, like the Flint water crisis, um, you know, I'm, I'm from Detroit, so it was very close to home. And in my engineering classes, we, when we, that was going on, we were talking about Um, like we had homework problems about like we were talking about like exactly what was happening with the pH levels and then like corrosion inhibitors and all this stuff and it was like very concrete of what was going on what exactly needed to be done to fix it but like my artist friends were just kind of planning these general concerts about like awareness concerts about it without really understanding the issue Um, and so I remember like being frustrated at that moment because I was like, well, you should know what's actually happening. And I think having that engineering experience just made me think of like how to see an issue from multiple angles and really, you know, really magnified and detailed and more concrete, but also maybe from this bigger societal picture, like as an artist.
1: In one of your pieces, Honk If You Love Me, you explore sounds of car horns on the city streets of India and how personalized sounds of these horns take on a more human meaning than the aggressiveness with which we perceive car horns in say the United States. Throughout the performance history of this piece, it is sometimes performed with clarinet alone, uh, sometimes with choreography and most recently with tabla. Can you share a bit about how you conceptualize, situate, and balance these various sounds and tailor them to each performance without losing the inherent sense of the work?
2: The initial iteration of this was commissioned by this group, Third Angle, which is a group based in Portland. They had expressed interest in doing a clarinet and electronics piece, and I think that was actually my first time working with electronics. So, I was very nervous <laughs> when I got this commission. I knew that I wanted to explore how technology informs our sense of humanity in, in some sort of way. And then I was thinking a lot about car horn noises in India. And I, a lot of my visceral memories when I was in India was always just sitting in traffic and it's like very scary. So <laughs> you traffic in India, it's quite chaotic. What I thought was really special about that was the way that car horn sounds were used. And, you know, there are always these really fun, like quirky uh, kinds of car horns, some like nice little fanfare, or if you put the card in reverse, it'll play a song like happy birthday. And it's, it's really lovely. And in a way, like even as chaotic as it is, you know, I noticed that, The way that car horns were even being used was really different there. Like people would just honk just to say, oh, I'm just passing by, hi, (laughs) I'm just coming right by you. And it was not like an angry thing. It was just like a way of communication. I thought that that was a really interesting thing to explore in this sort of cultural divide, but also again, how like mechanical things like cars inform our sense of humanity When Third Angle did it, it was on this concert that was featuring quite a few Indian American composers, um, and they had added on a collaborator who was a Bharatanatyam dancer um, named Subhashni Ganeshan they kind of said, oh, we would like to do some choreography for this concert. And so I actually didn't really have as much contact with her, but it was really interesting to see this work presented with with dance because I hadn't really thought of that, you know, when I was conceptualizing the piece. Um, And it definitely changed the piece for what it was. And so then other times when other people performed it, they didn't have dance. But then when this recent performance that I had I was with New World Symphony and they had approached me and said that they wanted to program this on a clarinet festival they were doing they kind of really wanted to make this like a, a real spectacle and they asked me like oh do you want we could do projections maybe we could try this and um, we had a bunch of production meetings for this and then we had talked about doing a dancer and then what was actually interesting was they have a close relationship with Zakir Hussain, who is like the, like the most famous double player probably in the world. And um, they sent this piece to him, which my, when I told my mom, she immediately called all of my Indian aunties. I was very excited. So he actually was the one who suggested for there to be live, because there were tabla sounds in the electronics. And then Rajesh Bandari, who was the uh, tabla player who performed with New World. um, He was really amazing. And I was really afraid. I had never written for tabla before. And also just like notation, you know, there's a totally different practice of improvisation and notation and like how to communicate with performers. And it it felt weird for me because like things were so precise and, the electronic part when the process public sounds were being used. Um, but we had a few meetings and he just kind of showed me just like the different, um, the techniques are called bowls, like the different sounds that you can make on the tabla. He was so amazing. He just kept practicing it with the demo recording. And then he just basically memorized the whole thing. It was so insane. And I I feel really spoiled from that experience working with him because I don't know <laughs> if other tablet players necessarily would have known how to work with the score that I gave them. Um, It was just such an amazing experience. And then he brought in this dance dancer collaborator named Jigna Shah. Um, And it just kind of became this really special collaboration between all of us. It looked really beautiful on stage. So I'm grateful to New World for investing so much in that performance.
0: recently composed a post titled trauma porn and the capitalization of mental health for I care if you listen. And in this article you addressed neural divergencies in music careers and your experience balancing openness around your own neural divergence with um, the desire on the part of presenters. Um, Well, I don't know if I would call it a desire but their um, tendency to tokenize the tortured artist. so I was wondering if you could share some of the approaches toward supporting marginalized individuals that promote their agency without exploiting a sense of otherness.
2: Yeah, you know that article I wrote after a very difficult year um, with with working with different presenters, and I had probably about four very awful experiences in a row back to back, um, last year. And it really, um, made me kind of question, like even like a career in the arts. And I was was just really struggling with this moment. And I, I think what made it worse is just, you know, as I mentioned earlier, like this current social climate where I think a lot of presenters are really struggling with their image, you know, publicly and, how to do kind of referendum on their programming and how to seem relevant today and what that means for their relationship with artists isn't always what that should be, you know, sometimes people react in the wrong way than how they're supposed to. And so, um, you know, I had had this really awful experience with this one group, which is the one that I had mentioned in the article The commission was uh, to do some sort of socially like social issue themed piece and I had done this piece that was about my own struggles with immigrant identity you know coming from an immigrant family and and I had kind of explained this piece to the presenter um said yeah go for it that sounds great and then when I wrote the piece and I sent it they basically sent me immediately. This, um, without ever entering any dialogue, they they just sent me this email that said, "You didn't follow the directions of the prompt. We're just not going to do this piece. Your your check will be in the mail." <laughs> like that was really what happened. Like they were just going to cancel my premiere without actually entering any dialogue about what the piece was about. They just didn't understand any meaning because it didn't seem traumatized enough to them on the surface. They wanted a piece, a whole concert that was like social issue themed. But like, again, this group was also like an all white group (laughs) basically. And they were trying to explore these issues of race and um, other kinds of marginalized identities. And they did not understand like that means you have to have dialogue with these artists on what that, identity means to them and how do they want it represented. I was pretty horrified. It's like a big back and forth. And eventually they did program the piece. And then I, I still have mixed thoughts about it because I think when it was received well, by the audience then they suddenly kind of did a 180 and the conductor actually apologized to me. I shouldn't have had to go through that experience and my piece shouldn't have to be valid only because it was validated by, you know, an audience.
1: So with that that actually brings us to our final question. And our final question is a question roulette. So if you could pick A, B or C,
2: I'll do C.
1: What has been your strangest gig or commission that you've ever done?
2: Hmm. I don't know if this is strange, but I, it was definitely a different way of working. I was a teaching artist for LACO LA Chamber Orchestra. um, And I got to work with these elementary school students. Part of that And it was kind of unfortunate because it was over the pandemic. So a lot of my interactions with them had to be over Zoom. One of the projects that I did with them was we talked a lot about um, graphic scores and text-based scores. Um, And then I had the class choose an animal. And then... Like the kids had to come up with like, oh, what kinds of sounds do the dogs make? You know, what what's their environment? And, then <laughs> and together then we did this like Zoom class performance first where everybody um, uh, just like unmuted themselves and then made these sounds just with their bodies or um, their mouths or, you know, just their voices um, and to mimic, you know, these different animals and their environments. And then from that, um, I orchestrated like a little small piece. <laughs> it was so cute. Like the dog one was called Hot Dog. It was just such a like joyous project. And the kids were so cute. And they were like, oh my gosh, we're a composer now. And it was so I guess it's, I don't know if that's really unusual, but it's like very different than other ways that I've worked. Um, so it was a lot of fun.
1: I want to be part of those classes coming up with a piece like that. That's awesome. <laughs> With that, we have come to the end of the interview and a huge thank you to Nina Shaker for sitting down and chatting with us this morning.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll visit us at www.soundweaversecast.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Soundweaversecast, and on Twitter at SWChamberCast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Paul Quartle. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. The music you heard in today's podcast was composed by Nina Shaker and performed by the Jack Quartet and Third Angle New Music. On behalf of the Soundiverse cast, see you in two weeks!